Have you ever wondered what makes a brand unique? You know, it's a funny question, but I I honestly ask myself a lot during that time. So uh, today I interviewed a guy who's made an awesome book, and his name is Sun Yu. He's written the book Iconic Advantage, that just became a bestseller on Amazon. And honestly, we didn't just talk about that. We talked about a lot of stuff ranging from... Uh, you know how South Korea and Japan actually made to the top because they were pretty bad economies to how to make your brand unique the different brand archetypes and much much more so thank you for being a listener to my podcast and now let me just connect you to the interview all right all right so I want to say one huge welcome to the pattern to genius podcast I'm super excited to have you here on the show but just before we get into the real stuff I want to know your story so what is your story soon you know i that's a great question first uh thank you for having me on nicolai and uh, thank you for uh creating such a wonderful thing and having the curiosity even at your age and being able to you know get some great guests and uh, tackle some great topics uh it's really amazing and i feel very privileged to be part of the whole journey that you're on and i can't wait to see what happens in the next five years for you. Though. So it's very exciting, very exciting. And I also uh, uh, excited that uh, you're broadcasting from uh, a different part of the world that I haven't been to that I absolutely want to visit at some point. Now, uh, back to your question, uh, my story, you know, it's a ever evolving story, I would, I would say. And, you know, um, I, I, I think of myself as I think uh, you and I were talking before the show began, um, the, the idea of curiosity and, and being a little bit of a nerd, and I'm a total nerd. So I, I think that's kind of described my whole life, my whole path, is this idea of being a nerd and being very curious about things and um, probably having a higher degree of curiosity about uh, things like uh, relationships and people and and even brands and, and, and companies with brands. and. For me, uh, when I think about brands, I actually think about uh, the idea that we as humans actually have relationships with brands and we actually fall in love with certain brands. And I was always intrigued by the mystery of what actually happens when you fall in love with a brand and um, how does that come about? And so uh, the book I wrote was really trying to examine the intersection between people and brands and how some brands have actually stood the test of time and have been around so long. And, and so that was sort of the genesis of writing the book, uh, you know, just a, um, a brand nerd writing a book about, you know, how brands uh, become timeless and how they become iconic. And uh, probably the other catalyst besides just being a nerd is the idea that um, I was looking at uh, my own past and I've been, an innovator. I've, I've, you know, always seen things in the world that, hey, if it's not there, why don't we just go out and make it happen? And that's kind of always been in, in my DNA. But I've always had a lot of failures versus success in terms of trying to commercialize new ideas, new products, new things. And I was just looking at companies like BMW or companies like Nike or Burberry or Amazon or Google. And I was trying to figure out what did they do different than what I had done throughout my career and my life in terms of trying to bring new ideas to, to fruition, to life. And uh, that sort of got me down the journey of writing the book about how to create timeless brands, uh, brands that have been around for a long time, brands that actually understand the idea of um, 
innovating what they already have, their strengths, uh, in order to continually um, remain relevant. So that, that's kind of, in a nutshell, my journey. A lot of failures to get to this point. I sort of consider myself a living and working prototype, and therefore, there'll be many failures still to come. So, uh, in, so that's a long story for my story. So when did that curiosity start? When did you decide to really study the timeless art of just, you know, seeing why some brands stick out and others just die off? When did that start? Well, that was uh, almost, you know, 50 years in, in the making. I think I wrote the book when I was probably 49 or 50. And so I had a career in doing a lot of new products. I've probably done over about 50 new products. Uh, I would say 30 of them never saw the light of day. Right? So um, yeah, it, it, it sort of took that long for me to um, come to the point where I said, hey, I have enough curiosity and knowledge, applying it then against research and really then talking to what you're doing, talking to lots of experts about what they were actually doing. And, and that's um, when I was able to you know, I didn't actually begin the process of writing the book with a topic uh, that was set in stone. It kind of evolved as I interviewed more people and I did research. Um, and, and then, um, you know, it, it, I knew that there was something around innovation I wanted to write about. Um, I didn't know it'd take me deep into the world of both design and branding um, as the question of how do you make, you know, things more successful when you innovate. So, yeah. So how did you how did you do that research for your book? You know how did that work? I know you talked to a lot of people, but how did you came to reach out to them? How did they? What did you do to, to make them say yes? Like how did that work out? How did you make so many interviews? Well, you know, part of having a long journey um, is that you meet a lot of people along the way, and I believe that you know good karma begets good karma. So. Generally, I was very fortunate to work in great companies with great associates, with great partners, with um, uh, you know other people that I networked with, and usually just you know using that network was sort of the key to opening doors. Um, and, and so it was. It was. Well, what I like about you is you just reached out sort of out of the uh, out of the blue. It was a kind of a cold email and. Uh, or, you know, note, and um, you took the initiative, and that got you this interview. It got you all your interviews, interviews probably. And I, I think sometimes that's all you need. It's just your curiosity and sincerity around that. Obviously, if you, you know, through my 40 plus years, I've met a lot of different people, and I would just reach out to my network and say, hey, I'm looking for somebody that's an expert on ABC or part of this company. Is there somebody I could speak with? And so that's kind of how I ended up contacting most folks. But you know, you're you're already building your network. Next time you need somebody in the branding world, you, you basically send me a note now, and I can say, well, I know two people, and it kind of goes from there, right? You know, that's so interesting because you know I, I found that yeah, you're right. I actually just do cold emails, cold messaging. I haven't done cold calling yet, but who knows if you in the future? Uh, but you know. It has its advantages, but you know, I feel like the only the only reason it's actually working for me is probably because of my age, really. So, uh, you know, I I'm really vouching for just building a relationship before actually, you know, just asking for something. 
But in terms of the podcast, yeah, well, I'm not really consistent with it because, you know, to build a relationship, you need time, you need effort. And I, in that meantime, I'm not posting interviews. So I got to post interviews. So that's why I called message. But that's a pretty valid point. Um, so I, I guess, you know, as a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you now as a writer to a writer because I'm also writing, I'm having a writing project right now. And I won't say that I struggle with motivation, but really when I just start writing at, at one moment, I just feel like, man, I just don't know anything. Like, why am I writing this, right? You know, it's not really a low self-esteem, but like, oh, so I haven't researched enough. How am I gonna finish this? Have you had those thoughts before when you were writing the book? <laughs> All the time, right? All the time. Sometimes uh, you get down the path on, you know, I, I write articles for different publications. Um, and one of the things I did early on is I, I, I think I'm reasonably skilled in writing. But to your point, it's not necess necessarily something I wake up every morning and I can't wait to write 10,000 words. It's, it's not in my DNA. So I actually found a writing partner who uh, writes incredible prose and we work together. He's my co-author, Dave Burrs. And so because of the collaboration, it made it so much easier. I could have ideas, I could bullet point them. Uh, he could help me think about how we turn into prose. We could go back and forth. And that collaborative process did a couple things. One, it kept both of us motivated because I think there are times when you, I don't know if it's called writer's block, but you get either distracted or you're just not fully motivated to want to sit down with pen and paper or, or keyboard and, and, and you know what. And, and so, I, I think um, having that person um, helps with uh, sort of breaking out, breaking down or, or sort of overcoming uh, those moments of, of dispassion, right? At the same time, also, when you're together, you naturally generate uh, enthusiasm and energy and it's contagious and you build off of each other. And, you know, if, if there's a, something that you can't solve today, knowing that you both are thinking about it and are going to get back together, you feel more confident that you can come up with something in the future too. I really like that. But first, you know, I just got to say, dude, uh, about the writing block, you know, writing as a whole, I believe is like, I wouldn't say the most complex are, but really like the hardest to do, right? Because you just look at a blank folder or a document or a, page and you just gotta fill it out with some good content you know it, it feels like crap at first you know for the lack of a better word before you actually fill it out so um how did you how did that came by the way like how did you find that co-author or writing partner what's that what's the story behind that well i knew i'd run and write a book i knew that um it, it would be and i was working full-time at the time i decided to write a book so i knew i needed help um, and I knew I didn't want a ghostwriter per se. There's ghostwriters out there that will basically take your idea and just write everything for you. I wanted more of a collaborator. Um, and so I interviewed a few folks. I, I did what you did now. I, I, you know, I reached out to my network, contacted a few folks said who, who's a good potential writing partner, you know, and, um, interviewed them, looked at their, um, what is it? Uh, their writing samples. Um, and then I met with them. And funny thing is, I actually didn't cho choose Dave at first. I had chose somebody else. And then I met in person with that other person. And there just wasn't the chemistry, although the, their writing style was impressive. 
just wasn't the chemistry. And then uh, I met Dave afterwards and the chemistry was great. And it was a, it just became a really great partnership. So that, that's how it came about is again, just reaching out to the network and, and just raising my hand up and saying, Hey, you know what? I think I, I, it, this would benefit from having somebody that actually isn't necessarily an expert about what I'm about to write, but is actually somebody who is an expert in different areas. And together when we bring, um, you know, we, we discuss a topic or principle or best practice, um, it brings that diversity of different points of view to the actual writing. So what was the biggest challenge while writing that book? The biggest one or the biggest ones? Um, I had a couple. I, I was currently working for a company and I wanted to make sure, you know, that I, I had to get permission. And so that was a, a one challenge. And and so I was very careful not to write too much about my uh, existing employer. Um, I only have one story about my existing, that, that, that previous employer while I was working there, um, just because I didn't want to do anything that would uh, violate confidentiality um, and trip any wires. So that was one uh, challenge. The other was probably trying to figure out how to get the book published. And that was a whole learning journey in terms of what are the different things and options available to you. And, you know, and then trying to figure out and sort through of those options, which is the best fit for the situation that you're in. And, and that was an incredible uh, challenge. So how did you find the time to actually write that book with, uh, you know, being, a, you know, being an employee at a company? So did you write like early in the morning or late at night? How would you find the time to write it, to write the book? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, uh, what I did every weekend for literally a year, I went into the office. I brought my son who at the time was like five years old or six years old. And uh, we spend the day in the office and, you know, I would set it up so he could uh, uh, do, you know, math games or whatever else he was working on. And I would probably spend four hours, uh, um, you know, both on Saturday and maybe two or three on Sunday. And I'd go into the office when no one was around. It was a great thing about the company I worked with is nobody working the weekends. And I was literally the only one there in an office of 500 people. I would be the only one. And, you know, it was quiet. Uh, had all the resources I need in terms of a computer and, you know, a, a, a desk and something, you know, and, and it was also an environment that I was used to working in. So um, it, it, it kept me sort of motivated. Which was the software you used for writing a book? Was it like Word or Google Docs or something else? Because they find that Word actually don't, not a lot of people like it anymore. So I, I totally used Google Docs, but what was your software of choosing? Yeah, I mean, we went back and forth and it's primarily uh, Word. And then obviously, if we needed to have a shared document, we would use uh, the Google Drive. Um, but it was primarily Word. And yeah, it's not the best, especially when you're doing track changes. It can get very, <laughs> especially if you've had five or six different versions of it and trying to keep them straight. Yeah, it, it became a, a nightmare on, on your eyes. So um, sometimes we would just you know, save a version and call it 2.31 and whatever. And then we would, you know, save all the changes and erase them and then start a brand new document. Um, even though it'd probably be the fourth document of that chapter. Wow. So, uh, how, but how did the name came to be, by the way, Iconic Advantage? I think it's pretty awesome. I, you know, it's simple. I, you know, I feel like, why, did, why didn't anyone else actually think of it? Right, because it's so simple, but again, it's 
it's actually again unique. Uh, so how did that name came to be? How would you came up with it? Well, I didn't have it. I didn't, like I said, I didn't have the full idea of what I was going to write about, except I knew I was going to write about innovation and how to build lasting brands. And in my journey, I just started to learn about one of the big aha moments was when I talked to folks and they said, oh, yeah, we're very intentional about building iconic businesses and iconic brands. I think um, I was doing a project with BMW Design Works and they explained to me uh, there's a strategy in place. There's best practices that they use. And, you know, they're very famous for creating some of the most iconic um, cars in the world, you know, the three series, the five series, the seven series, now the whole X series and, 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 you know, the, now the I drives, the I series. And then pre before that, there's the 2002s and all the other ones that they made. It was, it was just in incredible um, how they were able to do that. And they said, one, this is intentional. And then I said, okay, well, maybe instead of just, you know, write about innovation, I'll, I'll write about um, innovating for uh, building icons. And then I realized it's both a, uh, it was really both best practices for, um, uh, you know, building iconic brands. And, and, and so it was for branding, it was for design, it was for innovation, and it was around storytelling. And they used all those uh, different capabilities to actually create this iconic brand. And, that, and then I just realized these companies, when I looked at the ones that were doing exactly that, they're focused on building iconic franchises. Um, they were just more profitable. They were just much more profitable than any of their competitors. And then I looked at the company I worked with, which uh, had 30 different brands. Uh, the company I worked with was uh, BF Corp, and it's probably the largest apparel brand in the world at that time. And had brands like North Face, Vans, Timberland, um, Nautica, all these, all these different businesses. And when I looked at the portfolio of 30 brands, the ones that actually had iconic products in their portfolio were the ones that were actually the most successful and most profitable uh, in, in, our, in our, our business. And it just dawned on me, wow, it's a huge advantage to have something that people automatically think is the standard bearer for the category. That they already, they not only call it, use it, the, the word as a noun, but they also use it as a verb. And, and, and um, the, you have something that people love, that they wait in lines for, that if you're gonna go and sell another version of it, you don't have to convince any customers to carry it in their stores. They already want it. You don't have to con convince any consumers to buy it. They're already, they're already waiting for that next version to come out. I'm thinking about like the Nike Air Max, you know, that people line up for those the, the, the versions for that. And, and you think about it from a finance point of view, the finance people love it. Like for every dollar they're spending on an iconic franchise versus something brand new to the world, they're making a lot more profit and it's a lot more efficient and effective. You think about it from a supply chain perspective. If you're basically refreshing and making your iconic franchises more relevant every single year, instead of trying to build brand new lines for new products that are new to the market, you know, um, supply chain is that much more effective because I've already sold a million units. Now you're going to sell a million uh, you know, million five of those units. Great. You know, it's it's going to make what I've already set up uh, previously that much more efficient. So, from a marketing, a branding, um, a a financial and, and supply chain perspective, it just was a huge advantage, and that's sort of how they came together. So, what was the iconic advantage of your book that made it a bestseller? 
what is in your opinion that kind of advantage that you know made the book bestseller? <sighs> you know, I think, uh, like you said, I think the name is catchy, you know, and, and people uh, already automatically go, well, and I looked, there weren't a lot of books about icons and iconicity. And if they were, they were generally um, either very academic versus practical, or they were very design orientated, like, oh, you know, how do you design an icon? Uh, and, and so from a business perspective, it was such an easy concept to explain that, hey, if you create a timeless brand that becomes a standard bearer that then thereby becomes iconic, uh, and having those versus not having one is a huge advantage. People understood that. It was a very easy. So I actually think <laughs> when it comes to the book, titles are actually a big, uh, a big, a big lever for whether or not it becomes a bestseller. I look at a lot of the books that, you know, become bestsellers. They're usually actually, if, if I had one gripe about Iconic Advantage is that it's two words versus one. <laughs> and, and so I think the one word, uh, very clear and easy to understand books like, uh, I have a good friend, Chip Heath, who wrote a book on change management and the book is called Switch. And you look at the cover and it's a light, it's a light switch and it's really about, you know, how to, make change happen when change is really difficult and, and basically how do you switch it up? And, and so that was great. Or, or uh, Jonah Berger wrote one called contagious and that's the name of the book. And so I, I think um, advice for you, as you think about, you know, trying to create a book that people will like, see if you can make it one word and one word that really captures the idea of what you are trying to convey. And, and so I think the, the name helped a lot. Um, we, tried to keep this iconic red everywhere in all our materials and so that was our sort of our signature red and then honestly we just leveraged off of the icon icons uh, that were in the book um, and, and to, to sort of uh, you know build awareness and and um, uh, spread the word and so kind of we halo we, we got the halo off of the iconic brands that we talked about and after the book actually took off what were what were you feeling like? What did you envision about the future? Like, did you say something like, "Oh, this totally changes everything"? Like, what am I gonna do now? What were the feelings and thoughts when that book actually hit the bestseller list? Oh, um, I was with my family at the time, and uh, we got the note that it hit Amazon bestseller list uh, the, the 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 week before it actually um, went on sale, and uh, we were all elated, excited, and uh, I remember we went out and had, uh, we went into a hamburger joint and had really unhealthy food and milkshakes and, and had a really good meal and celebrated. But yeah, I mean, it was, it felt like a real important milestone and accomplishment. And, and you know, it, it, it was a, a good moment. And I think after that, though, is realization that, um, and I think most authors uh, end up realizing this too, is, um, getting on the list only helps a little bit. You still have to spend a lot of time and energy um, promoting and marketing the book. And uh, so uh, it was a good first step, but boy, you know, you know, with hindsight, it, it, it's, it's, it doesn't help much in terms of creating momentum. You, you still have to spend a lot of time and energy marketing and, and, and um, distributing the book. And will there ever be like second book? Are you, go, are you planning on writing more books? Yeah, we're in the process of writing the second book now. Uh, in fact, uh, right after this call, I have my meeting with my co-author, Dave, Dave Burrs, who's an amazing, amazing uh, creative uh, talent and a great copywriter. And, um, and he's authored many books himself. 
And so, yeah, we're, we're working on our second book right now. And I'd be happy to get on your podcast maybe six months from now to talk about it. Oh, hell yeah, man. I mean, I, I don't want you to like tell us any details, but can you give us like a little insight on what the topic is going to be? Uh, yeah, uh, really simply put, I, I think um, the world is becoming very frictionless and we're challenging the assumption of whether or not that is actually a good thing. And so that's yeah. kind of in a nutshell what the book's about. I can't wait to read when it comes to Bulgaria. And actually, uh, th that's the thing here, the books that, you know, foreign authors write, nonfiction, you know, fiction just comes out like every day here, everyone loves fiction. But the nonfiction mm -hmm. books, they come out like one or two years after they originally published in Bulgaria, in uh, USA. You know, we got to like, we're pretty behind schedule, you know, like your book, Iconic Adventure, I'm probably going to be able to read after like one or two years, unless I purchase mm. from Amazon. You know, mm -hmm. that, that, that's kind of sketchy, right? But um, I'll definitely be sure to check it out. Uh, awesome. Oh, and by the way, can we come back a little at the beginning? So you mentioned that you, wanna, uh, you want to uh, visit Bulgaria. Why is that? And that's kind of like off topic. I'm just really curious because we're all kind of nationalists in Bulgaria. So why do you want to visit our country? Well, I think uh, um, it's, it's a great part of the world that I have never been to. I, I would love to go. You, you have uh, the coast of the, is it the Black Sea. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. The Black yeah, sea. I've always wanted to visit the Black Sea and the countries that surround that. And I've seen some pictures. It looks... Uh, romantic it looks uh, both a cross between uh, kind of medieval slash a modern and, and so yeah um, a lot of desire to go visit that part of the world you know we thought about even uh, visiting Russia at one point but uh, with COVID and everything that was going on and, and it was just also very difficult to get the visas uh, so we, we had to put a pause to that but you know ho hope to within a year or two be able to go back and travel to eastern part of Europe. I think as far east as uh, my family and I've been to is probably only maybe Prague or Budapest. Uh, and actually, you know, we've been out to Turkey, which is in some ways is a border between Asia and um, um, what is it, Asia and, and Europe. But I, I think going up a little north of Turkey would be really, uh, I think, a fun experience. Yeah, you know, like we can have a whole podcast about our, right, like the culture thing. I believe that um, you know, at least uh, this is what I've seen, right? Because the difference between the West and the East, although cultural, actually really comes out in like every area, right? So, um, you know, the, uh, the Eastern European countries on the Balkans, Serbia, you know, Macedonia, Bulgaria, and Romania, and Hungary, and this and that, you know, these countries have a culture that has been taught to, you know, work hard, uh, be quiet, just do what you gotta do. And it's really different from the Western culture, which is still work hard, but also ask questions, right? Speak up, just do something, speak up really. Um, so, you know, we can have a whole podcast about that, but have you encountered how different cultures influence the different, the person's like perspective on business and the industry he's in? Or she's in. Oh, very, very much so. Uh, even within the United States, I think being raised um, by different cultures is also impacts even in how how different uh, minority groups show up at work 
just even in the U.S. And then it's even more pronounced when you go to the home country of that ethnicity. Um, you know, I, I think Asians as a, a broad generalization, uh, because there's probably 30 different cultures embedded in the, the word Asian. Um, it, I think in general speaking, yeah, I think there's some cultural traits of nece not necessarily always being as bold as you could be and, and also standing up when things are uh, awry and, and, um, and, and causing uh, troubles, you know, and, and I think it's funny. It, I, I do a lot of branding work and a lot of it is around also trying to understand the brand's archetypes. And I would say if we were to do the archetypes uh, against different ethnicities and cultures and countries, you would see over-indexing in certain ones in the U.S. versus in, let's say, Japan or versus uh, China or versus uh, Taiwan, where I'm from. And, I, you know, uh, there's one that's uh, called the outlaw, and it's the one that likes to uh, basically break things that are already broken, meaning if something's not working, you just want to break it apart and rebuild it. Okay, so there's a part of breaking something that's not working, and there's also a part of rebuilding it. And having the courage to say, look, I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to break something um, is, you know, not something that is as encouraged in either autocratic or Asian cultures, in, in some Asian cultures. And so, yeah, I, I do think uh, it shows up in different ways. And, and uh, yeah, I'd be very curious how the Eastern Bloc might be different than the Western Bloc in Europe, um, how this country versus that country, or, you know, um, even, even things as, as different as um, climate, you know, sometimes if it's so hot and, and you don't have just modern facilities and, and it's always hot outside. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I think all these things impact um, how the cultures show up at work. How would you define the brand archetype of Japan? Because really it's an interesting case because after the Second World War, right, you know that um, how they progressed so fast, like, you know, fast as in terms of, um, well, it wasn't so fast, but it was still considerably fast. They became really a world-renowned economy from being like one of the, uh, the bottoms, like, countries. So uh, how would you define that brand archetype of Japan? Because they progressed so fast, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So my internet was breaking up a little bit. You're asking how I would define the architect of Japan. Yeah. It's probably hard to say there's one archetype that might fit. There might be ones that, let's say, over index. And I also think you're right. The character of the culture changed slightly from the imperialistic Japan to modern Japan. Um, and you know, I would say imperialistic Japan was very strong in ruler. A ruler was very much about, you know, uh, seeing opportunities and uh, building and taking control for the prosperity of the people, uh, the country. Um, and uh, th there was, I think, a strong ruler mindset. I think post-war Japan, that's interesting. I, you know, a lot of the innovation happened there. Um, a lot of uh, I would say hard, hard work and eth and and good work ethics. Uh, um, so that I, I, you know, and there's an older population in Japan too. So there's a certain element of caregiver. 
there now, which is one of the archetypes. And I would probably say um, the other one might be sage, you know, uh, and creator. I think there's more of a sage creator aspect to, um, I call it maybe the generation that I grew up with Japan, which were in the 90s. Um, I, I think Japan is still, you know, is very strong uh, in terms of its innovation and creation. But, you know, countries like Korea have definitely caught up. And, uh, you know, they are, they are now very much in that creator role. So it's very interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about archetypes and point in time and culture too. So why do you think Korea catched up? What did they do right so they catch up to, you know, the world's best economies? Um, you know, they were part of the NIC, the, the newly industrial countries. And I think that was Korea, it was Taiwan, um, and there was, I think, two other countries that were part of that. that and early on, it was all about exports. They were trying to be the most efficient export provider in the world. Um, and, and so they became very efficient at producing, producing goods to be consumed by others outside of the country. And so they had a huge surplus, the export surplus. Um, what created smartly is they reinvested that to do a couple of things. Um, they invested it in education and technology very strongly. And, you know, they took what they did in production and they improved the actual supply chain itself. So they actually produced more effectively, efficiently, and they were able to produce, let's say, let's say it was the um, Hyundai or the Kia. Hyundai used to be the, <laughs> the bottom of the barrel when it came out. It was a laughing stock. And, you know, people would laugh if you actually had a Hyundai. It was a derogatory term to say you drove a Hyundai. And now Hyundai is surpassed probably Toyota and Nissan in terms of its innovation. Uh, same thing is true for Samsung. Uh, and, you know, if you actually look technology by technology, uh, Samsung definitely excels over Apple. Uh, so I, I think they've done an incredible job of reinvesting uh, their export surplus uh, funds into both education and technology and supply chain innovation. And because of that, they are now producing some of the most high-tech products out in the world. I think the next thing for them is um, they've been able to create big companies because of that. And those companies are what I would consider well-known because of their scale. I think the other thing that they need to think about adding on now is better storytelling. Um, even though an Apple phone versus a Samsung phone, Apple phone may be inferior from a technology point of view, there's more story and meaning and design involved in Apple's product. And therefore there's much more uh, uh, relevance and connection that people have to the brand. So I do think uh, they, they could benefit from reading the book I wrote. <laughs> this, uh, so let's expand a little bit on education. So how do you educate yourself? Do you read? Do you take courses? How do you make sure, how do you keep yourself sharp in your industry? Sure. Hey, Nicola, this is probably my last question. I actually was supposed to take a call about seven minutes ago. So, um, but yes. Um, Education, and you know, I, I think the key with education is um, 
looking at your life journey as something where uh, you will always be curious and ask questions and, you know, read and talk to other people. Um, and, and it's very hard in the current world to sometimes take time. It takes time to invest against the idea of learning something. And it could be a new sport, it could be a new activity, it could be a new skill, it could be a new you know, capability or topic or, or whatever it might be. And I always think about uh, the book, uh, Seven Habits. Um, uh, Covey talks about this idea of the quadrant two. And if you think about this idea of um, uh, two, two dimensions, one dimension is urgent and not urgent and the other is important and not important and you put the idea of daily activities against this idea of urgent not urgent important um, not important the quadrant two as the way he's described it is those activities that are not urgent at all but very important and we tend to spend a lion's share of our time on urgent important and believe it or not urgent unimportant. Urgencies tends to win out over the idea of importance almost all the time. And so uh, educating yourself, you know, um, going to the library, taking a course, um, spending time with an executive coach, all these things are not urgent, but very important. And they've done studies where if 100% of your time is focused on urgent and important stuff, for the first year or two, you're gonna be ahead of other people because you will always continually be ahead in terms of output and productivity. However, over time, those that have spent and invested 10% of their time on the um, non-urgent but important activities like education, like you know, satisfying your curiosity, uh, those folks actually build better and deeper skills. And so when there is required a transition, such as a promotion, such as a new job opportunity, such as um, something that's more expansive versus what you do every single day for the last two years, the people that have invested that 10% are more likely to get one promoted, more likely to um, expand their current uh, role or where they are, are likely to move, uh, are likely to just have a more interesting journey in their life. And so it, it's really important to invest the time because you're going to have just a much more interesting journey in life. And, you know, what you want to think about is they always say this, you know, what's going to be on your tombstone. And when somebody eulogizes you, what are they going to say? Oh, you worked really hard for the last 50 years and you were the most productive worker. You hope that's not what they say. You, you'd love them to say, oh, I have all these stories about this person and we did this crazy thing and we did this thing. And we were so embarrassed about this thing and they're such an idiot for this, but I love them for that. And you know, you want those type of stories. And by investing that 10 or 20% of your time on the, the non-nurgent important things in life, you will have a much richer life. Thank you, Sue. I think that was an amazing conversation. Thank you for all the insight. We wish you a great week. And again, thank you for dropping all these valid bombs. Have a good one. You bet. And you, you, you keep uh, pushing it and make sure that 14, you don't peak. You, 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 every year you continually uh, just build on what you're doing here. It's, it's really exciting. Thank you, soon. Uh, I will sure take that advice as an urgent thing. And thank you. All right. See you. Take care. Bye-bye.